Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is episode 18 of Junior Resource Investing. Uh, I am excited today to bring a bit of an international flair for my North American listeners to you. Before we get going, though, just as always, this disclaimer that I'll provide, please remember this is not financial advice. Neither myself nor my guests are financial advisors, right? This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. For full disclaimer, please check YouTube notes below. Uh, with that out of the way, though, yeah, I am very pleased to present our latest guest, Mike Schwartz. Mike is the Managing Director of iTech Minerals. iTech trades on the ASX under the ticker ITM. And for, and I guess I'll just stop here right now and give a quick shout out. To, uh, for those of you who don't, you know, if you're struggling to get international exposure in your brokerage account, I recommend Interactive Brokers. That's one that I use and I've had great success uh, trading all over the world with it. Anyway, though, uh, Mike is the Managing Director of iTech Minerals. Um, they are right now expanding the resource at their advanced Kampuna graphite project in mining-friendly South Australia, and they are well-positioned to take part in the rapidly growing renewable energy and battery metals market. Michael, we've chatted a couple times over email, but this is our first time face-to-face. It's nice to meet you. How's your day going? Uh, very well, thanks, Matthew. Nice to meet you, too. Perfect. Uh, so why don't you know? So we, I, I'm going to start this conversation with a bit of a macro discussion around graphite because that's your your core focus of your company. But why don't you just give us a 30 second overview? I mean, tell us just who you are a bit, and maybe just a 30 second elevator pitch on iTech before we get going. Sure. So iTech is a relatively new company. Uh, we listed on the Australian Stock Exchange in October last year. Uh, we raised seven million dollars, and our main focus is on our graphite projects, which are based here in Australia, uh, and in particular, South Australia. So we currently have a, a jaw compliant resource of eight and a half million tonnes at about 9%. And we're looking to, to grow on that resource. Um, we know that we can produce good quality battery anode material from that graphite. Um, but the, the next step really is to expand our resources and make sure the metallurgy uh, is consistent that we can produce battery anode material from all of the graphite that we find. And so, again, just for listeners, uh, there you do have a number of different projects. The focus on this will be your graphite prospects that are all located within about 20 kilometers of each other, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, for me, and I guess this is you know full disclosure for my for my viewers, the graphite I'm relatively new to, right? This So this is a, a good uh, cutting my teeth, shall we say, on this interview. But, Mike, can you just run us through just a general primer? And so this is where it gets all of a sudden, you know, as soon as I ask this question, it will get very complicated in a hurry. But, you know, can you give us a general primer introduction to graphite and if, if this could be even done in a minute or two right but what are its right, right now so what are its current uses and then probably of course more importantly future uses if you don't mind sure so um there's two main types of graphite that are used for industrial purpose the purposes there's synthetic graphite and there's natural flake graphite so we're in the business of mining and exploring natural flake graphite so that has traditionally been used in the refractory industries for lining furnaces and kilns, that sort of thing, also for, for casting. Um, but it's more and more now being used as the, the anode or the negative terminal of lithium-ion batteries. So um, there are some really quite specific requirements that you need for that natural flake graphite. Um, you need to be able to purify it to 99.95 plus percent. Um, and also it needs to be of a, of a certain flake size. So traditionally, the, the uses for refractories and for, say, expanded graphite um, have been larger the flake size, the better. Uh, but with the, the growing demand for battery anode material, the flake size is really not so important. So it's the, the finer flake sizes which are now uh, becoming more in demand. And luckily, our projects fall within that category. 
Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I would say probably about 40% of the world's demand um, has been for flake graphite for these purposes and the other 60% is synthetic. But uh, we know that the, um, the energy required to produce this material is a lot less for the natural flake graphite. So it has a lot better ESG credentials. So we see that, that demand growing even more. Um, so at the moment, there's about 1.1 million tonnes um, of natural flake graphite that is being uh, produced of concentrate. Um, and I think Benchmark Mineral Intelligence recently uh, proposed that that was due to expand quite significantly. So they're proposing the, the need for a, a, another 97-odd mines at about 50,000 tonnes per annum capacity. So we, we believe that we, you know, we're in the right space. It's going to take time to get all of these projects uh, away, um, and not every graphite deposit can produce the, the battery-grade material. Uh, and we've proven that we have and we can do that. Uh, so we see that we're well-placed to start to meet some of that demand. And so, again, you, you've articulated it well, you know, but this is kind of what I was saying prior to talking to you even was, you know, gold is gold, but graphite is not graphite, right? That there, there's a, quite a few different types of graphite. Uh, so one, one important thing that you reference yourself, the large flake, pardon me, versus the microcrystalline, which is what you're after here. Uh, but can you just run through, so you, you're working from a sub 100 mesh micron count. That's your graphite size. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So um, when it comes to battery anode material, you're looking at spherinizing this graphite and the size of those spheres is uh, critical in how it performs within uh, the battery. So uh, related to that is the size of the flake that you have to roll up to make these spheres. So the, sort of the medium size is about 17 microns um, across. So uh, you want to have a flake size of about around about 75 microns to make that size uh, sphere. So um yeah, so traditionally 150 plus microns was called, considered to be your, your largest style flake that would go into uh, expanded graphite and uh, refractory purposes. Whereas um, if you wanted to make that kind of material into battery anode material, you'd have to grind it up or, or micronize it down to that sub 75 micron size. So about 95% of our material that we mine out of the ground is already at that flake size. So that, that gives us a, uh, an advantage in the production costs. Um, that we're mining it out of the gr ground uh, at that already reduced flake size. And so you have, and we'll touch on this later, but you do have, this is a couple months old now for your project, but for you know viewers who are new to you, you've had some exciting news in terms of metallurgy and your ability to have a legitimate kind of green claim for your project here. But maybe if I'll, I'll just sidestep that for a second, we'll come back to it properly on its own. Uh, Spherical graphite, which is your, as you say, that's kind of what you are in the business of. Right now, it is in competition with the synthetic graphite. Can you maybe more, uh, more cleanly or, or, or fully articulate maybe the advantages and disadvantages of the two and, and why spherical is the, the space to be, I suppose? Sure. Um, so with synthetic graphite, um, that's essentially uh, produced as a byproduct from the, the coal industry. So uh, to graphitize that, you need to heat it up. Uh, to extreme temperatures uh, and and convert it into to crystalline graphite. So it takes a lot of energy to produce that that material. Um, so where you get that electricity from uh, has a big impact on your ESG credentials. So if you can't source it from renewable uh, sources, then your ESG credentials are, are quite low. Um, and 
I guess you have um, with with a natural flake graphite, that graphitization process has already been done by nature. So we're mining it out of the ground, and that any energy input input has already been done by by uh, Mother Earth. So we're mining it, and we just it's already conductive. It's already crystalline flake graphite. Uh, for us, it's already in the right flake size. So we mine it up, uh, we concentrate it, and then we purify it, and then it's uh, it's ferronized, and then it's suitable for for lithium ion batteries. So. The, the advantage that we have here in South Australia with our project is that um, South Australia is a, a real hub for renewable energy. So um, I think for a few days uh, this summer, our whole state has run purely on renewable energy. Um, so we, we're quite advanced in that uh, aspect and it's plumbed into our electricity grid. So uh, our projects are on the Air Peninsula and they're quite a uh, a, a large site where renewable energy is generated, both solar and wind. And so we can tap into that renewable energy to actually produce um, the spherical graphite. Um, electricity is a large component of our purification process as well. So we're hoping to tap into that renewable energy to A, mine the, the natural flake graphite out, out of the ground, which is already uh, advantageous, and then use renewable energy in processing it. So that adds even more so to our ESG credentials. And, you know, I think that your company is positioning itself rather well. I mean, I think that most viewers here will agree that obviously there's a green revolution coming in the sector. Uh, and so you are simultaneously producing a, a critical mineral for green energy, renewable energy. But then also, yeah, you are you are in a position to produce it in a very sustainable fashion, especially relative to your peers with this new technology. Right. So, yeah, your company is kind of uh, coming at it from both ends rather successfully. Um, let me just swing back here. So why don't we just talk about demand, right? And so uh, my understanding is, is that there is going to be, and this is kind of, uh, you could talk about copper, zinc, nickel. I mean, there, there is going to be chronic supply deficits upcoming um, for darn near any metal or mineral that I can name. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's, of course, why I'm a big, big bull for this, for the mineral and resource sector in general. But could you maybe articulate just where we are based on what you know? And I guess maybe I'll ask more specifically, where is present production coming from? Um, and then maybe, and we'll move on from there. Maybe just ask right now, could you just break down production, global production for us? We'll move on from there after that. Sure. Well, the easy answer is the bulk of it comes out of China. So um, that that is slowly starting to change. There's uh, some production out of uh, from Sarah Resources out of Mozambique. Um, they're doing about 350,000 tonnes per annum out of about a 1.1 million uh, tonne per annum uh, demand at the moment. Um, but, yeah, the, when you then talk about the battery anode material, not flake graphite, uh, concentrate, but the battery anode material, you know, almost 90% of that material is coming out of China. So oh. it, it is very restricted um, for any of the uh, um, the battery manufacturers to get their material out of China. So, and as you probably know, there's quite a push uh, by the European and and um, and the USA to diversify that supply for this material being a, being a critical mineral. So, um, luckily, you know, at Australia, we we fit well into um, that fair trade agreement with the US. So, uh, we can bypass a lot of the, um, the the tariffs and the taxes that are that are placed on uh, other material. So, we see. Uh, both the European and the, and the USA economies has been, um, I guess, very large. Uh, so be, being very large potential offtake partner sites for for our product. Um, but yeah, so look, it, it's uh, it's it's difficult to have to build up the infrastructure to make this, um, in particular, you know, South Australia a site where we can produce enough material. 
but there is another company called Renasco uh, Resources who are looking at producing um, battery anode material here in South Australia as well. So between the two of our companies, I think that we can really make South Australia as a, I guess, a, a hub for uh, battery anode material and graphite production. Mm-hmm. And just as an addendum to that, uh, you know, the, the little bit of research I had put into this interview prior to our, to our meeting, uh, my, from I think it was Benchmark as well that you had referenced earlier that uh, Canada is ninth in the world in global production and we produce 0.9%, right? So as you said, 60% from China, it's very, very top heavy. And so, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on this in a moment, but when you get into the current geopolitical situation with kind of globalization starting to fray a bit, shall we say, uh, these these commerce, this is a very important conversation and, and literally, you know, in, in the case of USA, Canada, America, or pardon me, Australia, a, a critical mineral, right? Um, yeah. do you, do, and so this is where, do you, can you maybe explain to us, so uh, electric, electric vehicles, hybrids, how much do they use of this spherical graphite? Um, so in a, an average electrical, electric vehicle, um, you're using at 70 kilos of graphite. So there's a, a very large proportion of that battery is in physical mass is, is made up of graphite. So, um, yeah, it really has been uh, an under-promoted uh, component of electric vehicles. You know, lithium really has taken the, the limelight over the past, say, year, uh, year to two to three years. Um, but graphite is, yet, I, still, I think, really yet to be recognised at, at how critical it is a component of uh, both electric vehicles and uh, let's not forget uh, energy storage. I know that's quite critical for us here in South Australia, having a large amount of renewable energy. Uh, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, we need to store that electricity somewhere. So we're building these very large-scale battery farms uh, in which to store that material, and that's having more and more of an impact on the demand for battery materials as well. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, this is a, an evolution that is occurring day by day, year by year. You were seeing more and more of this occurring, right? That, that, that the inertia of this is starting to, or the, the momentum behind this sector is starting to very much increase where maybe it was hype for a few years, but now we're maybe turning the corner at an inflection point where actual demand because of these industries is starting to outstrip supply. Just a couple of stats I saw, Mike, and you can step in here, but this is just it's the things that just kind of make me go, wow, I guess, right? You mentioned lithium. Lithium has gone up. I mean, everyone, if you're in the sector, you know it's gone up, what, seven times in the last yeah. year and a half or two, or two years, right? Uh, just So this is just based on I think, benchmark mineral intelligence and uh, mining.com. But so a couple of stats here. Compound annual growth rate for graphite is expected to be 40%, 40% year over year to the year 2030. Uh, demand for graphite is expected to, to just graphite, bulk graphite is expected to quadruple by 2030 based on demand for lithium ion batteries alone. And then put another phrase or put it, put it another way that natural graphite is expected to 7x in demand by 2030. So I think sometimes you know, a lot of retail investors Here's a Canadian hockey analogy for you, Mike. That uh, there's a saying, you know, don't don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going, right? And I think that sometimes, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, yeah well, it's hard to understand exactly where that is sometimes, but I, I think it's a clear direction that it's going in. You know, the, there's there really does appear to be a significant shortfall in the amount of um, natural flake graphite that's going to be produced for for batteries. Um, I think I mentioned before, not every graphite deposit is suitable to turn into the battery grade material. There will be some projects that fall short. There are those I would look out for that have already proven that their material can be made into the, the battery anode material. They're the ones to, to follow closely. 
Mm -hmm. And so switching gears here, just maybe to try to flesh out our understanding of graphite a bit. Uh, so how CapEx intensive is it? Is it, you know, is it a nickel mine, a copper porphyry mine where it's multiple billions involved just to get it running? Or where, where are we at? How CapEx intensive is graphite? Well, I think, um, obviously, you know, uh, capital prices have gone up with inflation uh, recently, but um, based on our back of the envelope calculations we've done recently, you'd be looking at about 300 million uh, to build a full production facility, uh, including a graphite concentrator, um, and then the purification and spherinization uh, part of the process as well. And that would uh, produce you uncoated purified spherical graphite. So uh, that would, would then is quite a saleable product. You sell that to the battery anode manufacturer. They code it according to their specifications and then put it, put it into the anode. So those figures that I'm roughly quoting for about a 50,000 tonne per annum concentrate uh, production facility. And if you've got conversion of that um, that concentrate around about 50%, we produce about 25,000 tonnes of, of purified spherical graphite. Perfect. Thank you. And you've, you've, been, you've anticipated a couple of my questions here. So maybe that's a quick follow-up. 50,000 tonne per year, producing 25,000 tonne of actual spherical graphite. At that, is that that 47% conversion rate that you folks found yeah, for that? Yeah. yeah. And again, sorry, not to not to confuse listeners. We'll get to that. But is that just to, just to clarify? Is that uh, is that an average sized graphite mill, or where does that rank? I guess in in the so, world. To answer that question, I, I guess if I refer to that benchmark mineral intelligence study that was done recently, where they quoted the ninety seven new mines that was need, that were needed, they quoted each one of those mines has to produce fifty six thousand tons per annum of concentrate. So it's pretty much on the ball as far as what they they see as an average uh, facility. So why don't we transition over to geopolitics, right? I think that obviously that this is a fairly simple conversation to be had. And again, it's kind of the same conversation that's had in, in mineral after mineral. China, you know, very astutely, I guess, if you want to give them kudos to that, but over mm. the last 20 or 25 years have worked very hard to become dominant in a numerous, in a variety or number of, of different minerals. And this is no different, right? So Canada, Australia, USA, as I referenced, this is all critical minerals for you. Uh, pardon me, graphite is a critical mineral. Are you seeing, I mean, are, are you seeing in Australia, is there starting to be kind of a, uh, I don't want to say a cold war, obviously, but is there starting mm. to be a freezing of relations? Or, I mean, how much are you interacting with potential Chinese offtake? I mean, are you seeing sort of a, a deglobalization a bit in your neck of the, in the, neck of the world? Look, to answer that question simply, um, for iTech, we want to see where our points of difference are in, in marketing this product. And for me, the fact that we've got the ability to produce such good ESG credentials using renewable energy and mining natural flake graphite, we see really our markets going into the European and American Canadian, you know, economies, um, where the, the gigafactories are being built over there. Um, there's, I, I guess there's a lot of other, uh, potential graphite projects that don't have such good credentials that we'll be able to sell into China where it's not quite so highly valued, but mm. to, to separate out ourselves out from other producers, we're going to play to our strengths. Um, so we, yeah, we see really, um, it, it's those markets that we can get, uh, at the moment, we're not really seeing seeing a premium in the price, but what we are seeing is um, is the demand is increased for projects that have good potential uh, to produce you know, green graphite. Um, so, so that's really where we see our, ourselves focusing in, in on that demand. Um, look, there's always discussions going on with potential off, offtake partners in China, but there, there's really not. Only, if we, if I guess, to step back, if we produce um, an anode material, so the spherical graphite, it, it greatly widens our potential offtake partners um, because we are 
um, we're creating a lot of value back here in, in Australia and, and widening the potential uh, people that we can sell it to. So that opens up the uh, battery anode manufacturers in Japan, in Korea, in uh, those places as well, which are, which are all out, outside of China, um, as well as the European and the US markets. So, um, you know, we're still a little way uh, from that, having those discussions. We're uh, touching base with a, of, of a few of them, with a few of them. Um, but yeah, like I said, you know, it's really going to be playing to our strengths and, and playing off those good ESG credentials. And you, so you raised up another conversation here that I'd like to have. Part of maybe, you know, what might give retail investors pause is that there is no spot price for graphite. Is that correct? Mm. Is that, I'm not incorrect in that? Yeah, yeah, that, that's correct. It's all um, price based on off-take agreements at the, at the moment. And so I guess how does that impact your day-to-day? Is that how, what, what sort of challenge is that for you? I mean, are, are you experienced in this sector? How much does that, yeah, how much does that play into, or how much of a challenge is that? I guess we'll keep it at that. You know, look, it, it can be difficult, um, particularly when you're building um, prices into scoping studies, that kind of thing, about mm. what kind of um, price you're likely to get for your product. But there are a number of companies, including Benchmark, that are uh, attempting to uh, publish you know, the, the equivalent of a, of a spot price by researching a lot of these offtake agreements. Um, so we've got a fairly good handle on what the, the global price for our products are at the moment. Um, so what it does come down to is there are a lot of specifications that you have to abide by as far as your material, uh, those performance criteria that it has to meet. And the, the price will vary uh, based on whether you, how closely or how far exceed, how much you exceed those specifications. So that's where the complication comes into it on, on the pricing uh, side of things. So look, it's not a huge problem. We've got it within the ballpark, but the devil will be in the detail when we come to negotiating these contracts. Mm, of course, and so I guess, and now you know, correct me if I if I mistake my 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 specificity here, but so for sub one hundred microns uh, spherical graphite, do you have a, a ballpark number that you can provide for us? That that what is the price right now per ton? Yeah, so we're looking at about five thousand US dollars per ton for uncoated purified spherical graphite. Um, that's what we're working on in the economics of our, our project at the moment. So uh, about half of the material that we produce will be in that price range because we get a 47% conversion rate from the flake to the, uh, the spherical product. And so the other half we can sell if it's unpurified for about $800 US per tonne. Um, but what we've done in our testing is we're able to purify also that other uh, 53% that's not spherinized. Um, and once you purify that to 99.95% plus, you can use it as a conductivity agent in lithium-ion batteries to enhance the conductivity in the cathode. And then all of a sudden, you're getting the thousands of dollars per tonne for that material. Uh, so it costs you more to purify it, but uh, the price you can get for it increases it significantly as well. So at, at the moment, we haven't built that into our financial model, but it's something that we're looking at doing. And we know technically that we can do that, which is a, a great advantage as well. Mm-hmm. And so, again, just to draw a comparison to lithium, because it is kind of a natural comparison, uh, lithium, of course, as everyone knows, we referenced it, has gone up substantially in the last 18, 24 months. Have you seen, based on your your pricings that you've seen, that $5,000 US per ton, where is, you know, 12 months ago, 24 months ago, what was it pricing out at? Yeah, look, it's, it's, got, it's come up uh, probably from about, I've watched it over the, Past eighteen months, three and a half, you know, four thousand US dollars a ton, up to five thousand more recently, where it's sort of hovered around that that price. Um, 
look, I think, and I think we'll keep seeing it rising significantly um, as demand continues, you know, as has been projected. But the thing that will temper it where it won't go quite as crazy as lithium is that you need these qualification periods of over a year to two years before any contracts are entered into the, that are binding and any prices are agreed upon. So there will be a, a more constrained gradual increase in the price over time as, as demand uh, continues. Um, uh, with, with the lid kept on it by yeah the, this qualification that, that needs to be go on, go on with the uh, the offtake partners, and of course the, I mean that would obviously help reduce volatility volatility yeah. as well, which is kind of nice from an investing perspective. And also, I mean, just remember that there are chronic and increasing deficits. I think that this year they're 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 forecasting a deficit in twenty twenty three much less, you know, 20, 20, 30, right? So, I mean, these deficits mm. are, are going nowhere fast. Maybe, I guess, and this, this will be the last question for this topic. I just can't help but ask, but what's the, you know, what's the turnaround time, right? You know, 15 years for copper porphyry to go from discovery to production. What is it for, you know, your graphite, Campuno, say, you know, you, you drill out Lachroma, you have a great find here in 2023, and it's, you know, everything's going gangbusters. You know, what's, the, what's, the, what's a respectable average timeline for that to turn into production? Well, I think um, about five years is probably reasonable. We have a, a quite an advantage in that we already have a, a granted mining lease over our Campuna deposit, which is about two to three years of production. Um, so that has already been approved by our, our state government and we've got approval to mine. We need to uh, get some uh, additional approvals uh, on the basis of having changed our process from using hydrofluoric acid to a caustic bake, but we've done that because it's a lot more environmentally friendly process. But um, we, we've, we're at a significant head start to a lot of other uh, potential producers. So we have, when we acquired this project, there was already a mining lease and all those approvals had been, been put in place. So we have the ability to, uh, to start uh, production at a, at a slower rate, probably in the next uh, two to three years, uh, all going well, and then bring the other potential resources we are drilling out at the moment online in a couple of years after that. Excellent. So why don't we transition now? Um, so thank you, uh, that little kind of brief primer, 15-minute primer into graphite. Why don't we switch over to actually iTech itself, right? So as you mentioned, it's a recent IPO, 14, 15, 16 months old. Can you just ex maybe explain the genesis of your company? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I'm a geologist by trade. Um, I, I worked for the State Geological Survey here in South Australia for about 10 years, um, and I've listed a number of companies uh, on the ASX um, post-working for the, for the state government as I got more and more into economic geology uh, and, and got a passion for making discoveries. So um, I, I started out um, in the iron oxide copper gold uh, side of things, so we have a very large copper gold deposit here in uh, South Australia called Olympic Dam. Um, it's one of the largest in the world. So I started exploring for those types of, um, um, of deposits with my first company that I IPO'd on the ASX. And then I had a transition into uranium and then got into battery materials. So uh, I was a founding director of Core Lithium, um, which is uh, an up-and-coming lithium producer here in Australia, um, and, and worked for those guys, got them into to lithium exploration. And then I um, saw that cobalt, uh, probably about five or six years ago, cobalt was starting to take off as well. So uh, I got into to cobalt exploration with a company called Northern Cobalt, uh, and then I really started to cut my teeth on on battery uh, materials and, and get um, some reasonable experience in what the markets were like, what the issues were in the industry, and, and what the demand for 
uh, batteries were, were likely to be in the, the longer term. So we, I guess about five years ago, we had a bit of a false start with the electric energy revolution and some of these commodities, um, the, the prices fell off. But this time it definitely feels different. Like it is significantly different this time. So I looked around for opportunities where I could get my, my feet back into this space. And uh, there was a company called Archer Materials um, that had all these graphite assets on the, the Air Peninsula. Um, and they started uh, from the, the graphite, they made graphene, which is very thin layers of, of graphite, uh, one atom thick. And from that, they started producing quantum chips of all things. So quite a stretch and a, and a diversification, but they did really well in, um, in advancing that technology. So they wanted to divest all of their mineral exploration assets. So I came along, I acquired all of those assets, and then I um, uh, listed them back in October. We raised $7 million. Uh, and our focus initially was we had you know a variety of com- commodities in our portfolio. Uh, graphite was was definitely the main one, but we also had kaolin and then rare earths um, as well uh, because they're you know, likely to be in significant demand over the coming years. So um, while we did all of our metallurgical test work on the graphite to see and confirm we could make um, high quality battery anode material, we went off and explored for. Uh, most of last year on the kale and, and rare earths and had reasonable success in defining, you know, what, what we think are, are significant um, uh, amounts of, of both kale and, and, and rare earths attached to them. But you know, there, there's a lot of complexities in the metallurgy around extracting rare earths from kale. Um, our metallurgy from the graphite came back and it was an absolute cracker. We were able to produce really high quality battery anode material. So we saw this is the direction we want to go in. Um, you know, the metallurgy works We've got the potential to add significantly more resources. Um, and we saw, I guess I mentioned this company before, Renascor, um, making great inroads into developing their project. And they're only about 40 k's away from us. Now, we're a, a, about a $34 million market cap company. Uh, Renascor, based on our graphite project, are a $600 million market cap company. So that that's kind of the kind of value for shareholders that we want to emulate over the next 12 to 24 months. And we can see a clear path to do that. So just a couple of questions here, just to clarify. I mean, your philosophy, yeah, you pick up our, a couple of REE projects, Kaylin, as you mentioned. What was your strategy? I mean, is this just because generally you are a bull in the green renewable sector? Or, I mean, what was your what was your process involved in selecting uh, projects or, or prospects to bring under your umbrella? Um, so having had the experience in the battery materials space, um, and I, I guess I pull, I, I should say renewable energy, I guess, to pull the rare earths aspect of it in as well, um, because they're used in the, the high fuel strength magnets of electric motors, um, both in electric vehicles, wind turbines. So I wanted to build a portfolio of projects in critical minerals that could help to support the renewable energy revolution. Um, you know, I, I, like I said before, I honestly believe it's a, it's a whole other ball game this time. Um, it's you know it's been embraced wholeheartedly both by the general public and, and the government. Um, so you know I could see there being sustained demand in this area. You know, and I'm a bit of a you know I guess a sustainability buff myself. I've got my own solar system, as I was mentioning before, and my own battery. And I, I try to have as little impact you know on the earth as, as possible, which is a bit ironic coming from the mining industry. But um, I, I want to work in an area of the mining industry where we can, you know, have the biggest impact and benefit for the environment. And I saw that graphite in particular um, and and rare earths to a degree uh, was where I could could make that impact. So um, when we acquired these projects, we, like I mentioned before, we had uh, a a mining lease already granted. We could see that the the technical uh, aspects of the 
uh, of the material was well suited for producing uh, battery anode materials. So that was really the focus is to look at um, any commodity uh, that we can advance quickly to help with the renewable energy revolution. I mean, you're absolutely right, right? I think that there is a lot of, of pushback and, and mining probably not unfairly has a bit of a bad reputation just based on historical precedent where, you know, there are some bad uh, bad stories that a lot of people can reference fairly easily, right, in terms of environmental destruction and, and social issues. Uh, this is not, I mean, this is, but this is an entirely different industry. Uh, and I guess the grim reality is, is that they are beyond necessary, right? Graphite, nickel, all these things. Like, I mean, the, the, it is not a it is not a, a matter of negotiation. It is a matter of pressing necessity if we wish to meet these needs, right? So, I mean, I consider myself, yeah, like you say, sustainability environmentalist. I mean, these things are important to me. But I mean, nevertheless, here I'm in the sector because we don't get to that without these, right? We don't get to that future without these minerals, right? Yeah. Um, what I'll give you a chance here. Why don't you just uh, just brag about your team a bit? You want to just talk through about who you have on your team and what they bring and and, and what they and how they contribute to success? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we we have a very uh, tight team here at ITEC. Um, we're based in South Australia, where our projects are. Um, there's myself, who's the managing director, and I'm a, a geologist by trade, so I try to still get my hands dirty out in the drill rig while I, while I can, um, and not have unrealistic expectations on my staff. I find that's very useful to to, to keep me in check. Um, and then we have our uh, exploration manager, a guy called Wade Bollenhagen. Now, um, he's a, a geologist with a, a lot of experience. He came across from the company that we acquired all the projects from, uh, Archer Materials. Uh, and so he has about probably 15 years plus experience with these projects. Uh, he knows all the landowners. He's on had really good relations with them. Um, and he knows the projects exceptionally well. So he was a great asset to acquire. Um, and then we have a, another junior geologist as well that helps us with the day-to-day -day, uh, exploration program. So we're a pretty tight-knit team. Outside of that, we use contractors, um, you know, drilling contractors, uh, geophysical survey contractors, that sort of kind of thing. Um, but with my sort of extensive experience in the, the exploration industry, we like to keep a, a, a tight cost-effective team because we don't want those, those costs to run away. We want the shareholders' funds to be spent in the ground producing value. You know, so our our main focus is to putting those drill holes in the ground and making making each of those drill holes count towards um, value for the share price. Um, and so that that um, talking to that point as well, we've only got a three person board, uh, so we don't have very high corporate overheads whatsoever. There there are a relatively small percentage of the the money that we we burn every quarter. Um, so our focus is as geologists is on making those discoveries and then advancing those discoveries as quick as possible, um, doing all of the, the correct due diligence along the way to make sure they're feasible, uh, but getting those projects into, into production. Mm. So why don't I just ask you this as a decent segue, cash on hand, how much cash do you have right now? We just re uh, finished a, a capital raise at the end of last year. We have eight and a half million in cash. Um, and in the next couple of weeks, we're looking at starting up our graphite drilling programs. So what has been a very slow burn rate is about to increase quite dramatically. We're looking at spending in the order of uh, $4 million over the next six to nine months. And most of that will be on, well, all of that will be on drilling for graphite uh, and also metallurgical test work as well to make sure the material that we're discovering meets all the right specifications. Is that a is that 12,000 metre campaign? I think I read that somewhere in your literature. Is that accurate? Yeah, so we're doing, um, it's going to be 20,000 metres all up. Okay. Uh, we have two projects that split across. One is called Sugarloaf. Uh, Sugarloaf is a little bit riskier as far as its um, metallurgical aspects go. 
it, it's a bit we think it's a bit it's a microcrystalline project which means that um we still haven't quite worked out how to produce a high grade concentrate with good recoveries out of that project but there's a lot of material in the ground we're looking at We've got an expiration target on that of 160 to 260 million tonnes. So that's a big project. That could see us up for, you know, many, many uh, years of my life if that if we crack that metallurgical code there. Um, the other part of the project, we're, I think we're going to drill about uh, 5,000 metres on that and then about 15,000 metres on our second project, which is called La Croma. Uh, and that's about 20 kilometres away. Uh, and what we do know about La Croma, it's about the same size, but the metallurgy has already been done to show us that it makes a good battery anode material. Uh, so that's a lot less risky. So we're putting about 15,000 metres into that that prospect because it's a, it's a, uh, a lot less risky. Uh, and while it's the, the same size, there's only one drill hole in it at the moment. So uh, you know, it's not sort of uh, take it to the cleaners, we've got another resource there. <laughs> we need to drill a lot more holes to confirm, to confirm that. So um, whereas... Uh, Sugarloaf has probably about 30 or 40 holes. So the geology is more certain um, at Sugarloaf, but metallurgy uncertain. Lachroma, metallurgy more certain, but geology uncertain, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, if you're an investor in this sector, that's where you start to get excited, right? That used to have those, yep. some of those, some of those risks are de-risked and there's still a little bit of risk to make the reward worth it, right? Absolutely. So how much per, so South Australia, you're drilling, is this RC or Diamond Core? Oh, we're doing RC drilling. Yeah. Is there, and so this is again, pardon my ignorance on graphite, but it, there, I assume there is a need eventually for diamond core, but you're just not at that state yet. Yeah, that's right. Um, so when we come down to, so in the resource definition stage, RC drilling is quite functional mm-hmm. for that. When you start to collect material for the detailed, detailed metallurgical test work where you're working out how the material grinds, uh, you need the diamond core because with the RC, um, material that comes up, it's, it's hammered, so it's essentially partly ground already. So some of that is done in the ground, and you don't have good controls over that. So um, yeah, that's what the diamond core is needed for. And if there's any structural complexity, so if um, you know it's been folded or folded or doing weird things underground, that diamond core can give you that that information as well to mm. predict how it's behaving underground. Perfect. And so cost per meter then for your RC. Uh, we, we're budgeting about 170 to 200 dollars a meter, all in costs, including analysis and time and um, costs of drilling, as well as uh, all the ancillary staff and that sort of thing. Perfect. So why don't we just talk about? I'm, I'm jumping around here, my questions a bit, but I think that this is a natural segue here. Do you mind just talking through jurisdiction, South Australia? I, I honestly, as a Canadian, I had to look it up. You are a very mining friendly jurisdiction; it's a big part of your economy. Did, did you just talk about maybe attitudes towards mining? And then both social and governmental. I mean, it, it, are, is there a resistance on a community level? Is this, you know, the, is this the bread and butter of their economy? Where where are people at in terms of? I mean, are you are you a, a popular guy in the neighborhood kind of thing, right? Or well, um, everybody likes to think so, but they, <laughs> they find out when they go and talk to to the locals. Look, it's really helped with our company that we have um, our geologist that has you know over 10 years experience with the locals uh he's well known as and has worked amongst them and and is trusted which uh you know we of all the places we've tried to get to drill we've had no resistance so far at all uh we tried to employ the local people it's uh it's mainly south australia um the bulk of our economy is based on agriculture we call it dry land farming so growing wheat 
barley, uh, that, that, those kind of materials, um, and you own a bit of livestock farming as well. Uh, we do have a, a moderate mining industry. Most of that is uh, Olympic Dam, which is a very large copper gold mine further to the north of the state. So it's not, you know, by any means unknown uh, in South Australia. Uh, mining is, is very well supported. But, um, you know, luckily our state and our federal government um, so the South Australian government and the Australian government uh, is very supportive of mining because we have Western Australia, which is a mining powerhouse around the world, um, and they can see the benefits that the communities get from the royalties from mining uh, and also the jobs that are created as well. So, you know, we are generally well regarded. Um, we, as long as you are sensitive to the needs of of the locals and particularly the farmers, which, you know, I grew up on a farm myself, which, uh, you know, that that has a a lot of benefits when you're out talking to people and also in, in understanding what potential impacts you might have on, on the locals as well. So we don't drill anywhere where they're, um, where they've got their crops uh, planted or where they're growing right now from now with summer here in, in, in Australia from now through till, um, May, June, July is an area where they really don't do much work on the ground. So that's our window to go in there, interrupt it and do exploration. Um, yeah, look, we, we really haven't had any, any issues. Um, we're well supported by both the, the community and the government, uh, even to the point that, you know, our uh, federal government has just announced another critical minerals fund where they, they put about $50 million towards uh, advancing projects that are in critical minerals. So we're, we're going to be applying for that for our graphite projects to see if we can't get some funding to advance in particular you know, our, our metallurgical processes uh, for the graphite on the Air Peninsula. So the really, the, the, both the, the community and, and the governments are very supportive. You, is, is, are you located at all in an ecological or culturally sensitive region? No. Um, so uh, some of the issues we normally have to deal with are um, Aboriginal heritage and native title. Um, but in South Australia, uh, the, the land ownership uh, title uh, extinguishes uh, native title in the instance of where our, our projects are. So it's called a freehold land. The, the landowner can pay extra to, to, um, to change the status of the land to freehold. And when the land is freehold, that extinguishes native title. So all of the uh, projects that we're working on, um, native title has been extinguished, although we are you know, very sensitive to uh, the needs of the Indigenous people. Um, what does still apply then is any cultural sites. Um, now, most of the areas we're working in have been farmed for the last 100 years plus and they've been disturbed. So mm-hmm. there's not a lot um, that retains in its natural state. So mm-hmm. there's, from our point of view and I, I think from everybody's point of view, there's not a huge risk in disturbing any cultural sites either. So, yeah, look, it, it's um, it, it's probably about the best scenario you can get in South Australia for uh, for mining and exploration. I'm going to circle back here just for a brief moment here. And I just want to discuss share structure. Uh, so you are, you are a Australian companies if, for my North American viewers, North America, always, we do, we do these share rollbacks, right? And so we would keep a, it's artificial, but still a, a smaller share structure. Typically on the ASX or LSE, you'll see quite large share counts. Not so with you. You're relatively new, so you have more of a North American number right now. Um, yep. Can you just so? Do you mind running through uh, Warren's options? Uh, what sure. is your what's your float? And then afterwards, I want to just know about you know what's your skin in the game as well. I'll ask you that sure. after the fact as well. So, yep. Okay. So um, now I've put all these numbers out of my head. So I'll go back <laughs> to the, uh, the IPO. So. Uh, we raised $7 million um, 
and we issued those shares at, at 20 cents per share. Uh, as part of the uh, IPO, in purchasing all of the assets, we had to pay 50 million shares out of our initial share issue. So we ended up with about 90 million shares on issue. Um, now those 90, those, sorry, those 50 million shares that were paid to Archer Materials to buy the assets, they were, um, what we, they did what was called an in-species distribution. So all the shareholders were given those shares completely um, in proportion to the number of shares that they held in Archer. So we all of a sudden had nine, I think, no, it was nearly 10,000 shareholders on our register, which is really unusual for a company of our size. Um, so, but it, it's a great asset in, in being able to raise capital. So um, what that meant was that most of our shares were distributed to retail investors uh, and we didn't have many uh, institutions on or, or high net worths on our books. So that was the case probably up until the end of last year when we did our first capital raise and we raised another $6.5 million uh, worth. So um, $4.5 million of that we did to uh, sophisticated or high net worth investors and institutions because we wanted to get some of those guys on our books uh, that would support us in future raises as we go, go for larger and larger amounts as our, our projects develop. Uh, but So we did that at $0.25 cents, uh, for that $4.5 million worth, but we wanted to give our existing shareholders the opportunity to participate on the same conditions. So we did a further $2 million raise at $0.25 cents also under the same conditions. So I'm all for one for giving the retail investor the same opportunity as the brokers. Um, so, you know, so often they are overlooked. Uh, and they, I, I honestly believe having been one myself, a retail investor, you know, they, they should be given the, the same opportunity uh, to a degree as, you know, as the, the brokers are. So uh, that, that $2 million was well oversubscribed. We, we only went out for two and we got $8.8 million in applications, which shows you, you know, how well supported we are from our, our retail shareholder base. Um, so we were very, very grateful for that, that support, you know, and we will continue to, you know, some, um, give our existing shareholders that opportunity as we move forward. So skin in the game for me, um, uh, I, I basically put the whole deal structure together. So I have, um, of we now have 122 million shares on issue. Um, I have 2.7 million shares that were issued to me during the IPO for putting the whole deal together. And I have another 2 million in options with a strike price of 25 cents. Um, our... Uh, our other two directors and our company secretary have 750,000 shares each um, with no options, except for our company secretary, I think, has a million options as well. So all over, the overhang is uh, about 3.2 million. Um, so there's 3 million shares and about 200,000 performance rights, and that, those performance rights are, are for our expiration manager uh, for a sort of retention um Every year he gets 100,000 shares issued to him. So there's really little little overhang, if any, um, on the whole whole share structure. And that is nice. You're right. I mean, it's just a couple of percentage points of your overall float is, is overhang with your, yep. with your options there. So that's an, always a nice touch. Uh, average cost basis, do you know what you're at or what your other directors are at? Uh, no, I don't have that off the, the top of my head, sorry. No, it's all good. No worries. So why don't we move on here? Let's actually start talking about uh, your actual your prospects here. Um, so why don't you just run us through, you know, so you have a Campuna project. Uh, you've got, so there's three different prospects there. Do you mind? And so I'll have visuals up here, right? So for sure. so you there will be a map of your projects up here. But do you just want to run through 
uh, where they are, the location, what what's going on, and, and maybe just the, the prospectivity of them? Yep, sure. So um, the main project that we acquired that already had a JORC compliant resource, so uh, for the North American viewers, the, the JORC is the Australian standard, which you're probably already familiar with, uh, of 8.5 million tonnes at 9% graphite. Um, so that, that's a modest resource, and, and that had already been established by Archer Materials, the company we acquired the assets from. Uh, that's over, th- over three individual deposits. Um, and that's the uh, the resources that we've done most of the metallurgical test work on so far that we produced a really nice quality battery anode material from um, that met all of the, re- the relevant um, uh, criteria for, for battery anode material. Now, one of the things I should point out is that we were able to purify that material to 99.99% repeatedly. Um, I, I, I'm just making that point because the, the cutoff grade is 99.95%. Um, and if you can get it to 99.99, it gives you a margin of error, error when you're packing and transporting this material for some contamination mm-hmm. in that process. So when you're looking at a lot of other projects that are barely making 99.95, they can't have any contamination in mm. transport or packaging and they get below spec. So if you're looking at other companies, look for those ones that can purify it to that grade. So, you know, that, that bodes very well for the quality of our material. Um, so we were very happy with that outcome from that eight and a half million tons that, that we've got existing. So that, that eight and a half million tons, um, is in the central air peninsula. Really good infrastructure. Um, like I said before, it's a farming community, uh, lots of renewable energy. There's good, uh, transport hubs. They use that to deliver the grain all over to the ports. Um, good port facilities on, on that basis as well. Um, so, you know, transport is really well looked after. There is a mining town about, 140 kilometres away from our, our mine site, um, and that's a, a town called Wyala, and that's where there's a steelworks there. Um, so that's got really good infrastructure from a mining point of view. There's a skilled workforce um, that, that is resident at that location. Uh, so, you know, the, the whole location has good infrastructure for mining. Um, so, so getting back to the resources, you know, the 8.5 million tonnes at 9%, that gives us about a 10 to 11-year mine life. So... You know, if we're going to develop that, we're going to need to push that out to 30 to 40 years to really justify that capital cost of $300 million plus. So hence this upcoming drilling program that we've got. So where we're going to be drilling is at two locations, which I mentioned before. Um, La Croma in the first instance, um, where we know the metallurgy works really well. We just needed to find a reasonable size resource there. Now, um, we've got about six and a half kilometres of strike. Uh, of what we know is graphite bearing material. So there's uh, one drill hole that has that metallurgy done on it that has about a 70 metre thick intersection of graphite, uh, going about seven or eight uh, percent graphite. Um, and that, that is right through the middle of an uh, airborne electromagnetic conductor. Um, so uh, to explain that a little bit, um, graphite is obviously a, con- a conductor, which is why they use it in batteries. Uh, what you can do is you can fly in an aeroplane over the surface of the ground and you can charge up the ground like a battery. And where there's graphite, it stores that energy. So all of it, then you turn the current off in the aeroplane and you can measure as that battery um, loses its charge and that produces a magnetic field and, and that's how you can work out where the graphite is and isn't. So normally at about you know, between 7 to 10% graphite, you get a really good conductor. So at the Cromer, that conductor is in excess of six kilometres long and about three kilometres wide, so it's a really large area. So we, we hope it's going to be a bit like shooting fish in a barrel with our drilling, 
uh, and you never know, you know, it's, we call it the big lie detector, the drill rig. <laughs> so over the, over the next, you know, six months, we'll be out there drilling that, that project and hopefully turning up graphite, graphite in a lot of those drill holes. Um, so that, that's the chroma. Um, we want to add, look, our goal is to probably add another 40 million tonnes of resources over the next 12 plus months at that location. Huh. Um, and that will take quite a bit of drilling. Um, but to hedge our bets, we're also drilling at this other project called Sugarloaf. And that's a very similar size um, type of target, but the metallurgy hasn't been proven there. Uh, even though there's a lot more drilling into it, we know there's really nice um, thick intervals of graphite close to surface and it's flat lying. Uh, we need to crack that metallurgical code there. So we're spending quite a bit of money on on processing that material to produce the you know a, a high quality concentrate. And the reason we're having problems with that at the moment is because it's so fine. It's it's about thirty to, to ten microns uh, the, the flake size. And what that does is that binds itself closely in the rock and makes it harder to grind up and separate. But a number of other companies have done it. It's proprietary within those companies, but we know it can be done. So we're working on, on uh, cracking that code ourselves. And if we can do that, that opens up another substantial resource that we could feed into our, our battery material project. Um, so, yeah, look, it, it, it's mainly about adding resources over the next uh, six to 12 months uh, and then proving that that material could be made into uh, the battery spec material. Uh, just to just to touch on, well, I guess there's a couple of things I want to talk about. Obviously, the chroma and and and, uh, and sugarloaf. Sugarloaf, I just find so curious because it is such a. I imagine it'd be a little bit infuriating to have such a large resource in the ground, but have it be uh, locked away. Is it? I think I read somewhere. I'm not sure where I caught it, but is it? Is it silica intrusions that are the issue in the granite, or what? What is the issue there? So we think that could be um, part of a problem in the northern part of the system. There are some granites that intruded, and what happens is when you get these hot magmas intruding is they dissolve silica and then they basically glue the surrounding rocks as they um, they uh, intrude this silica into into the material and it's partly glued, glued the, the graphite there as well. Um, so we are concentrating our drilling further to the south where we believe that silica hasn't affected it quite so much and there's still a pretty substantial body of graphite known down there. Um, but the metallurgy we're doing at the moment is on the more problematic material. So if we can crack it there, we can crack it everywhere. Uh -huh. um, but so not only is it the, the silica, um, we think that's probably you know, part of the problem, but it actually being so fine uh, and mixed in with the other types of minerals, um, you have to grind it quite fine to separate those graphite flux. Um, but what the reason um, in, in the very preliminary testing that has been done so far, it hasn't worked, is we've only used the very standard grind and float techniques. These are kind of industry standard processes. By no means have we stepped outside the, the box, you know, from the normal processes. So that's what we're starting to do now um, because we see that there's a really big prize there uh, at Sugarloaf if we can crack that. And we know other people have done it and produce some very high quality battery anode materials. So one of the ones I've been looking at um, is Tauga. They've got a project in Sweden. Um, a lot of their material is quite fine and they've been able to produce you know, a, a high quality battery anode material out of that. Um, so, you know, we, we know it can be done. It's just a matter of learning how to do that ourselves. So I can't help but ask, how do you choose your priority, right? So you, yeah, you kind of have two opposite ends of the spectrum. You have metallurgy without the tonnage and then you have the tonnage without the metallurgy i mean where do you how do you prioritize you know how did you shift you know you have sugar loaf you've shifted over to the chroma how how did you make the decision or how do you how do you balance that i guess right so we're kind of hedging our bets we're doing a small number of meters at sugar loaf 
um, to collect more sample for metallurgical testing. So we're spending low, lower dollars on drilling on sugarloaf, more dollars on metallurgical testing. Uh, on Lacroma, where we know the metallurgy works a lot better, a lot of dollars on drilling, uh, and then just uh, confirmation testing of the metallurgy at Lacroma. But look, if we have to focus on one or the other down the track, uh, Lacroma seems to be the one that um, is a lot less risky because the metallurgy is amenable to standard processes. You know, it, the, the flow sheet that we've designed for Campuna, uh, it, it would fit into that flow sheet without hardly any modification from what we can mm. see. Excellent. And so you, and so talking about uh, Lacroma here, this is, you know, I, I, pre-discovery is a little too spicy for my tastes, right? And so what I like about your project, and this is, you know, when I, when I do have, I have my checklist that I run through and I'm ana- analyzing a, a company or project is that you, you have, your geophysical data matches the geology, right? You've done the aeromag and you've drilled that hole and, and they match. And that's such an exciting moment because, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it. I think you said before, aerial, knowing just enough to be dangerous is a dangerous thing, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a geologist. I just play one on TV here occasionally, right? But, uh, you know, that, 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 but that is an encouraging sign, right? This is not pre-discovery. You have a working thesis. It matches the ground. And now it's just a matter of proving it out and just seeing actually what's in the ground, right? So I'm not sure if I have a question for you necessarily here, but you're, you're in that sweet spot where you have a working, somewhat proven geological thesis. But it's not so proven that there's no value left for investors, right? That there is room for a lot of growth here, as you say, forty million tons in twelve months. That's a that's a heck of a goal, right? So yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and the geology will determine whether we can get there or not. Um, that's mm. what it always comes down to. But yeah. we, we we see that we've got the elements in the system that make that um, feasible. So you know, uh, we, we're quite confident that we'll <clears throat> that we'll have a positive outcome. Um, you know, whether we get to that 40 million tonnes, you know, and that's why we're kind of hedging our bets. Um, we're looking at 40 from Lacroma and 40 from Sugarloaf, you know. So, you know, if it, it's one or the other, um, or if both come through, all the better. Um, and, and that's not the end of it either. We've got about 200 kilometres of strike extent from those aerial surveys that are all known to contain graphite. They're conductors all the way along along this one horizon. We've just picked out the two that have the best potential mining geometry. They're close to surface, if not outcropping, and they're flat-lying. Um, and they've got drill holes in them to show that it's caused by graphite. So now there's not much more you can ask for as a starting point um, to, to start to, to drill out these types of resources. And you, you just reminded me, I neglected this when we were discussing drilling. Uh, so you're doing 20,000 meters, 12,000, I think. I'm sorry if I'm forgetting this already. 12,000 on the chroma. Uh, how, you're only going 150 meters down, or how deep are you drilling? Yeah, so the the, um, the geophysical surveys uh, suggest that we should be through the graphite layer down by 150 meters. So while it does, uh, it's wavy and a bit foldy, it's all relatively close to surface. Um, and, and the bulk of it should be above 70 metres. So 150 metres is an allowance to make sure that we get well below mm. uh, that lower horizon and, and through the graphite. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of to manage budgets as well. You budget, budget for the worst and then you know plan for the best. Uh, mm. So uh, we'll see how that goes, yeah. So I can't help now. I apologise, I'm bouncing around here. But So just to pursue this drilling again, so what's your plan? So that's that'll be in the neighborhood of, I mean, I'm, this is just total mental math here, and I'm not an English math teacher, right? But uh, 80 holes or so, something like that, uh, is that is that neighborhood ballpark to what yep. you're 
Yeah. And so what's your plan? I mean, how much of this, how, how ambitious are you going to get in terms of trying to improve up the size? Are, are you starting to do, are you planning to do a little bit of grid work to help with the resource definition? What's your, what's your, what's your actual kind of, I mean, and maybe this is just too soon to tell right now in terms of 2023 drilling, but how do you plan to use those meters? Um, so for Sugarloaf, which is the smaller of the project, it's, um, it's testing the aerial extent of, of the graphite. Um, very, very broadly with low density and collecting material for metallurgical test work. Uh, if we can't crack the metallurgy, uh, then it's sugar loaf will, will stop there and we'll keep working on that in the background. Um, but we know the metallurgy works for Lacroma, so we're doing a lot more intensive drilling there. So I would say about 10 holes at Sugarloaf, um, the rest, the other 70 plus are at Lacroma. And that is again, extending, um, testing the, aerial extent, um, the horizontal direction of the graphite plus the, the depth extent uh, of that, that main body um, and, and collecting a little bit of material for metallurgical test work as well. What we are doing, and it is quite cost um, intensive and intensive on metres, is we're doing uh, variogram drilling where essentially you do like a half a star of drilling where you go out um, north, south, east and west, and then you go out at different angles and you drill holes along a kind of a star pattern. And from that, you can work out how the geology and the graphite mineralisation varies over a set amount of space. And then once you've got that information, you can then use that to see how variable your mineralisation is and you can plan your drilling to a lot, a lot more effectively down the track. Um, so we're doing that first off, and then we're stepping out and doing larger spaced drill traverses. So at the end of the first main program, we'll probably get, we would hope, to exploration target stage, uh, possibly inferred resource stage uh, if it holds up well. Um, but if we have great success and we get good mineralisation in uh, the bulk of the, the target, we probably will plan to continue drilling. Now, we've raised enough money just recently that we can keep on doing continuous drilling. Now, we've, we're in the process of negotiating with the landowners that we can compensate them for the areas that we impact if we get into their cropping season. Uh, and that's the, those negotiations are going very well and looking positive. So there's the, the potential that we could keep drilling um, on an ongoing basis to get to that, that resource definition stage. Couple of questions here. A few minutes left. Um, I, just a question. Uh, obviously, and we've re referenced this a couple of times in terms of metallurgy and that forty-seven percent recovery we discussed. Uh, yeah, in the fall, you had some pretty exciting news uh, from Anza Plan in Germany. Do you mind just running us through? You know, if, assuming that the listeners are not familiar with your story, what can you run us through who Anza Plan is and why what they did for you is so important to your company? Yeah. So. Um, when we acquired the projects from Archer Materials, they'd done a lot of test work and we already knew that you could purify this material and, and use it in batteries. They tested it in coin cells and it and met all the relevant uh, criteria. But all that testing had done, been done here in Australia, which really doesn't have a battery industry. So it was done by labs and organisations that you know, they knew what they were doing but aren't, I guess, well regarded internationally as far as their reputation goes and uh, and up. Uh, that well known where so we thought well let's um go to somebody who is internationally well regarded um and by doing that the test work that you do then uh, essentially in a way pre-qualifies you with potential offtake partners mm -hmm. to, to say this is high quality test work if we if we came and got your material itech we would take it to anza plan and get it tested so we've gone to those guys already yeah. 
uh, and sort of kind of got pre-endorsement, I guess, is the way of looking at it. Look, it's it, it's a more time-consuming process to get it done well and to get it done properly, but they are very thorough in rig- and uh, rigorous in, in how they do it, and we've been very pleased with the, the outcome. So um, they took... This wasn't, wasn't bench-scale testing. It was quite large-scale testing. They took um, 600 kilos of material, so it was a lot of material. Um, so it's sort of pre-pilot plan, um, but uh, larger than bench-scale testing. So this is starting to show that it works in an industrial scale. So we took these 600 kilos of material. Uh, they did grind and float and were able to produce a 94% uh, flake concentrate. Uh, at recoveries above 80%, which is spot on what you want. Um, that'll produce good economics. So um, we then took that material and we did sizing of it, and 95% of it fell within the 75 micron size, which is perfect for making spherical graphite for battery anode material. So very little micronization or grinding of the larger flakes need to be done, which saves you a lot of energy in that process. Uh, so we even did some tests where we didn't micronize at all and still made good battery uh, quality, quality battery anode material. Uh, we did all the relevant uh, testing after we um, we spherinized it and purified it, and it met all of the relevant battery criteria. So uh, the 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 size of the spheres was about seventeen microns, which is a medium sized product, and that's the kind of product that goes into uh, electric vehicle batteries and also energy storage. Uh, and we were pleased about that because that's predicted to be the largest uh, growth. Uh, part of the sector as far as demand goes. So if you have really, really small spheres uh, down to, say, about seven microns, it goes into your mobile phones and consumer electronics because it charges up a lot quicker um, because of the small oh. spheres, whereas in that larger medium size, uh, it's more, more about uh, energy density and energy storage capacity, which is what, what you want for electric vehicles. So it uh, worked out really well. Um, and I mentioned before the purification, being able to purify it to 9999 I think out of the 10 tests we did, six of them, we achieved 99.99 and the others were all above 99.95. So really good outcome is the purification. And that's often the, the hardest metallurgical step to be able to achieve. Uh, there's a lot of um, battery projects out there where they get you know, 99.87 or 99.6 and they just can't get rid of that last material and it falls over there. So being able to achieve that was you know, a pretty big milestone for us. Um, so, you know, very, very pleased the the metallurgical results um, from uh, – that was mainly from the Campuna uh, deposit where we have that dual-compliant resource. So that, that puts us in, in good stead now to start sending that sample out for pre-qualification testing uh, for potential off-take partners. Um, so, yeah, look, it was, um, it was a pretty significant step for us to do that independently and do it in a very reputable lab that other people would take seriously. So, yeah, we are kind of getting down to the nitty-gritty here. Just a couple kind of uh, bookend questions here for you, Mike, if you don't mind. I guess, you know, this is a question that I ask uh, CEOs just to see, you know, what their perspective is, right? But, I mean, for you, I mean, you are a geologist, and so I always kind of appreciate when a, ge- uh, when a geo is in the the director chair. But what you know, what is the biggest, you know, if you want to call it a fly in the ointment or a problem or even just like an unanswered question, right? You have this working thesis, but like what, what's left? What, what is the biggest blank space or question mark or unknown variable left for you for this project for it to be commercially successful or, or, or successful for your investors? If, if I could split that into two things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go for it. Yeah, yeah. The first one is being able to um, define sufficient resources for a long enough mine life of material 
that is metallurgically suitable to produce battery anode material. That is, that is the biggest unknown for us. We have about 10 years of production that we know it's okay. We really do need to build that out to 40 years to justify putting 30 million, 30, 300 million bucks into the oh. project. Uh, and that then leads to the second part of it is you need to build the, your market cap up from where we are at 34 million to say Renault score 600 million to be able to raise that 300 million dollars to build mm. the build the plant now you hope there's natural progression as you add more value that that happens for you but it's not a given um so what Renault score has done they received a federal government grant uh for 180 million to pay for a large chunk of that development capital now, the, the federal government is looking at um, extending those co- kinds of grants. And so we are hoping that when we get to that stage that we will be you know, a- able to apply for a similar sort of grant to advance these you know, very critical projects for uh, the renewable energy revolution. So, yeah, look, um, they're really the two things, making sure you've got the resources in the ground of suitable quality and then being able to raise, raise the capital to develop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I think that sometimes... That you, it's funny because you think as a purist would suggest that geology should be enough, but geology without uh, the market side, with geology without a, a, an experienced market uh, tactician, shall we say, to to navigate it and fundraise, the, the, that's the, those are the projects that wither on the vine, right? It is it is a two it is a two headed beast, right? You have to. It doesn't matter how strong your geology is if you don't have that 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 understanding of the market or how to navigate it or how to use it, that you will struggle as a company, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe this is your chance to, to pitch it one more time here. So, you know, there's there's a number of graphic projects out there, right? I can name a few off the top of my head in Canada itself. Why should we look to iTech, right? Why why is your graphic project something that we should be looking at over peers and competitors? Yeah, look, um, I think one of the, the critical things about our project is we have uh, proven that we can produce battery anode material, good quality battery anode material, and we currently do have resources in the ground of, of that material uh, that we currently have a mine life for. So the, we do have a, it's, it's a modest resource, which means that I believe we're undercapitalized uh, according to our potential. Um, we're looking at expanding those resources over the next six to 12 months. So I, I see us really at um, the, the pre jump in shareholder value stage, you know, um, as we define these resources and build it out to a 30 to 40 year mine life and show that this material can be produced into battery battery anode material, we start to get compared with some of the lot bigger players in the industry like Sarara and Renascor and, you know, uh, these these companies that have market capital, these companies that have uh, market capitalizations in many multiples of what we are now. Um, so look, that, that's really the sales pitch is we're, we're at early stage. We've de-risked us, uh, ourselves a lot from a technical point of view, but there's a lot more value added, um, a lot more value creation to be, be made through further discovery. Uh-huh. And so why don't you just run through, you know, kind of a nice crisp bookend here, as I say, run through the 2023 catalyst that we might expect from, from iTech. Okay. So this year, um, the, the next major steps will be, uh, our drill results coming from the two programs at Sugarloaf and La Crema will be releasing those drill results over the next six months. Um, as we collate those results, we'll be looking at defining an expiration target and inferred resource, which you can then uh, build out our economics of our, our mine life um, and start to build on our, our scoping study to show the, the, the true value of our project. 
Um, so yeah, look in a nutshell, it's it's adding resources and and building that into the, the economics of the project. And anything we miss? Parting parting thoughts to you, Mike? No, look, I think you know we're just about to start a very active period of news flow. Um, uh, you know, I think we've de-risked it as much as we can. I think there's going to be a lot of good news over the coming six to twelve months. So it's a matter of what's our drill results and what's this space. Hmm. Well, thank you, Mike. It's we're here. We are at the seventy-minute mark. I, I am not a. I am not brief with my words. So I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks to our listeners. Uh, if you have more information, if you want to learn more about uh, iTech Minerals, please go to itechminerals.com.au. And it's a very, very strong website. Lots of great information there. Uh, Mike and his team have done a great job of getting that up to date. Lots of detail. Uh, otherwise, please, if you like my work, like and subscribe. And with that, Mike, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on my show. And thanks for taking the time to talk to me today, Matthew. Appreciate it. Perfect. Have a good day. See ya. See ya.